You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. It's on page 1234 of the Pew Bible, easy to remember. To the angel, we're going to read at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a, (coughs) a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. For those of you who are old enough to remember the civil rights marches in the United States in the 1960s, the song, We Shall Overcome Someday, was sung by Many people, and many people within churches. Sometimes we don't feel like those who are going to overcome. In fact, if you and I are looking forward to the week ahead, some of us are thinking, let's just get through the week. Uh, Let's see if we can survive the week. Well, Jesus comes to a church which was in an incredibly difficult situation, and I think Like all these letters to the churches, there's a lot for us to learn here. So I just want to go through it and um, give you some background and hear what God has to say to us through it. You'll you'll notice straight at the beginning, verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Let's find it interesting how people have this image of Jesus as he wouldn't say boo to a goose. You know, he would never upset anyone and he would never hurt anyone. But what's he doing waving a sword? It's, it's, a, it's an image of Christ, which just a lot of people don't grasp and don't get. And the fact that the sword is the sword of his mouth doesn't make it any less powerful. In fact, in some ways, it's more powerful because words are often more powerful than physical force. The sword is mentioned by Paul in Romans 13 as the, what the state has. He is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Well, Jesus brings us his word. And um, in the church here, we lay a great emphasis on teaching the word of God. And many of those who are Christians, sometimes you get them saying, well, Why? Why even do that? And the answer is because that's how Jesus works in our lives. 
So what does he say to this church and how does it apply to us? Pergamum was a church like Ephesus and Smyrna uh, in what we now know as Turkey. And the three cities argued with one another about who would be the greatest city in Asia, who'd be the capital city. So it's a bit like Edinburgh and Glasgow, and I was going to say Dundee, but Edinburgh and Glasgow don't think Dundee's even in the picture. Um, But it is. We are the true, genuine capital of Scotland. Um, Or, you know, Perth, Dundee, and our broth, I suppose. Uh, But Dundee wins, you know. So there'd be people in Pergamum who would say that, who would say, well, we're here, we're a a capital city. They're 55 uh, miles northeast of Smyrna. They had a massive library, was famous for its library of about 200,000 volumes. And remember, these were in days when there was no printing press, there were no books. So there were parchments and parchment books and scrolls. It was also the center of the religious life of the province. Um, A wee bit like Dundee, but a bit different. You know how the Law Hill is, and you shouldn't say that if you're Dundonian, you know it's not the Law Hill, because Law is the Scots word for hill, so it's just the hill. And if you say Law Hill, it's Hill Hill which doesn't sound all that great, but the law. You go up the law and you can, you can look all around. Well, in Pergamum, there was a hill of about 1,000 feet, and all the way up the sides of that hill, there were temples, many temples, the most famous being the temple of Askelopos, the god of healing, closely associated with the snake. Sometimes you'll, you'll see on ancient things a, a, a curved snake, And that was worshipping that God. There was a huge altar of Zeus as well. And most importantly, there was the first temple in the area dedicated to Augustus and Rome. Augustus was Caesar. And Rome was, of course, the Roman Empire. And it became the center of the worship of the emperor of the province. Why? Why Why is that important? Because all the other gods were dead. Here was a living God, and here was, inverted commas, a living God, and here was political power and religion put together. The titles of Lord, Savior, and God, and we've been, we sang Savior of the world and Savior, you can move the mountains. We pray to Jesus as Lord. The titles of Savior, Lord, and God were given to Caesar Augustus. That made it very hard for Christians because the Roman Empire didn't care if you worshipped Jesus as Lord as long as you also worshipped Augustus as Lord. Verse 13, look what he says. Uh, This is where Satan has his throne. Pergamum, where Satan has his throne. I don't think that we would like to be known as the city, Dundee, the city where Satan has his throne. What a horrible, horrible image. Well, let's just think about that just a little bit more. Because some of us have to live and work where the whole fabric of life is firmly opposed to godliness. And we are becoming increasingly astonished that people can be so adamantly hostile. Our queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth, I think we have so much to be thankful for for her. 
But honestly, God help us when she dies, as one day she must. She's been queen the whole of my life. Um, to, it, it's just incredible. But when she goes, when we see what's happening in our culture and in our society, then uh, I think we could face real, real difficulties. In Pergamum, the Christians were astonished that people could be so hostile to them, and the only adequate explanation was that Satan was enthroned there, and men in their various capacities were under his power. I think that here Jesus is particularly referring to the throne of uh, throne-like altar of Zeus. And there had been a persecution of the Christians because if you look at verse 13, you did not re- renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipath, my faithful witness. Now you and I talk about witnessing. If you're a Christian, you talk about witnessing. Um, I heard from one of our students uh, who's up in uh, Aberdeen and has been a text a toasty witnessing. That's great. I love that. Uh, my own uh, daughter, Emma Jane, she uh, went to a, a CU kind of pub quiz and took along some of her friends. And it's great to be able to witness in that way. There's not many of us queuing up to be a witness in the sense of martyrios, the Greek witness to death, the martyr, the witness, Antipas, My faithful witness was put to death in your city. It's interesting, isn't it? Again, we say Jesus being the all-powerful Lord and Savior. Well, why didn't he save that person? Because Jesus knew that it was a witness and because he has his own purposes to work out. This is the first occasion, by the way, in Greek that the word for witness is used in the sense of somebody who lays down their life for Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is writing to the church is he's saying this, here's the Roman sword and it can kill you, but the sword that's from my mouth is more powerful. My words are more powerful. So it's a very strong reminder to God's people in the context of fierce opposition that they are uh, to hold on and that they are to continue to follow Christ. But then verses 14 to 16 say something else. Because the church was well able to resist Satan in the form of the emperor cult. And it did resist. It stood faithful in the martyrdom of Antipas. But there was an even bigger danger, and I think this applies in our culture as well, that there's opposition not as fierce as people in Pergamon placed, but there is an opposition, a danger that comes from within. Because what Satan was doing was in instilling his poison into the church itself. He not only persecutes, he also seduces. And in particular here, he wished to eradicate the distinction between the church and the world. A lot of people will ask, why bother with, why bother with religion? Why bother with Christianity at all? And sometimes some professing Christians can get to a stage of such spiritual lukewarmness 
that to be honest, that's our reality as well. We are more concerned about how we're making our living or what entertainment we have. Whether we're like Stephen, who's got the ability to make his living and make entertainment or and be entertained. Um, I don't know. But we are more concerned about these things than we are about our relationship and walk with God. Salvation, Acts 4.12 says, is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I think that it is very difficult for us to get the balance on this right. Because we live in a culture where the state and the government and the society as a whole says all religions are effectively the same. And for you to say that they're not is kind of bigoted or racist. And there's an enormous temptation to compromise on what the gospel actually says. Here, the church had some people who held to the teaching of Balaam, which was associated with the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And uh, Nicolaitans here means he overcomes the people, and Balaam means he consumes the people. Now, the teaching of Balaam was from the Old Testament, uh, an oracle. Balaam had the story there of he uttered an oracle of blessing instead of cursing the Israelites. And what happened after that? The Israelites then went and engaged in sexual immorality with Moabite women and took on their sacrifices and worshipped their gods. So I'm not going to read it, but if you read Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25, you get that story. Now, what was happening in Pergamum was teachers came in, teaching Jesus, teaching the Bible, and yet at the same time saying that you know that Christians are not under the Mosaic law, which was true, but then saying, there's no harm in being friendly with Rome, and then saying, what harm is there in getting a pinch of incense and putting it on the altar and affirming loyalty to Caesar? Because they, were, they would say, look, we're going to work from inside. We're going to follow Jesus, and we're going to love Jesus, and we're going to be really, really nice to everybody, and we'll just go along with what the state says. We'll just go along with what the culture says. And then, because we're so nice, they'll want to become like us. They'll want to become Christians. Jesus is reminding them Antipas refused to compromise. Why are you compromising? The church can very, very easily forget its past. The phrase, the permissive society, was one that came into the English language in the 1960s, or the concept anyway. But it's not new. It's always been like that. There's always been this temptation on the one hand to go to legalism, but on the other hand to go away from what God actually says. Why bother with a holy life? Don't change. Be like everybody else. First Peter 1, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. I think that we're at an absolute crossroads. Uh, If you can, please, do come to the Unashamed Conference in in Solas because Michael Ramson and Stuart Windsor will really, really be worth hearing. But one of the things, I'll give you a a little preview of, of, of what I hope to say. 
I, I, I really do think we're coming to a crossroads for the church in Scotland. Things have changed so much and society is changing so much. And I think we're coming to a point where individual churches, denominations, and individual Christians are going to have to say, well, okay, whose side am I on? Who am I really with? And it's not going to be about denominational things or secondary things like baptism or spiritual gifts or whatever. It's going to be about these key issues that I identify in Pergamum where the Lord says, Satan reigns or Satan has his throne in your city and I want you to be faithful. Don't renounce or give up your faith. And I think particularly on these issues. One is simply compromise with the culture and the society around. There are, I'm not talking about us being religious legalists, but there are issues on which we can never compromise, and particularly this one, the lordship of Jesus Christ alone, the salvation of Jesus Christ alone, and the right of Jesus Christ alone to tell us what we can do with our lives. And we're moving into a society, into a situation where the state and those who govern us are saying, we're going to tell you what to do. And this is how you're going to behave. And these are your ethics. And unfortunately, in the Christian church, the church has compromised phenomenally. And I I read all the time of people who are former evangelicals, or they still say that they're evangelical. And they're saying things that are completely contrary to scripture. So this week, for example, uh, on an evangelical website, one I actually write for, um, Steve Chalk wrote an article in which he cited the Bible and the Quran as equal. But they're not. They're not equal. The Quran is not the word of God. And you'll never get me to say that the Quran is the word of God. I've read the Quran. It's a horrific book. Really? I don't want to live in a country where the Quran was the basis for the law. Now, that doesn't mean that you hate Muslims, and it doesn't mean that you can't have Muslims who are quote-unquote good people, the same as everyone else, but it does mean that to ask a Christian or for a Christian to stand up and say, well, on the one hand, you've got the Quran. On the other hand, we've got the Bible. On the one hand, we've got Jesus. On the other hand, you've got Mohammed. And it doesn't matter. We're all worshiping the same God. That's nonsense. And that's far more dangerous far more dangerous than direct persecution when that comes into the church. And it can come in in very, very subtle ways. Now, I have no truck at all and no time at all for the kind of far-right lunatic racists who are racists and who go on about, we're a Christian country, and they haven't a clue what Christianity is. They have no idea. And we'd never, ever associate with them And I think it's entirely wrong for us to even seek to persecute Muslims or uh, even by implication to do that. But it is completely false when the church says, well, it's not that much difference. And you know, there's been a huge fuss in the Church of Scotland about the same-sex marriage thing, and rightly so, I think. But it's nothing compared to what happened in the church that started it all off, Scott Rennie's church in Aberdeen, where they've uh, had Hindus 
coming in and worship, worshiping with all their different idols in a Christian church. It's just wrong. This is what is being taught here. Jesus says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And there's compromise on these basic, basic issues. Compromise on the word of God. Compromise on the person of Jesus. What is the point of being a Christian if you take away the Christ of the Bible? I don't see any point in it at all. And as some of you know, I was involved in a debate uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the fallout from that has been absolutely phenomenal. And there are evangelical Christians who are saying, why don't you keep quiet? Why don't we just all get on and then be salt and light in the culture? You're salt and light. Listen, sometimes salt might have a bitter taste and sometimes light, in fact, light always, doesn't it, expose the darkness. I think also in the church, there's a big issue that we're facing And this is in the evangelical church as well. There are people who would listen to what I've just said and go, yes, amen. And then they would go home and they'd switch on their computer screens and they'd watch internet pornography. Or they'd go off to work the next day and they'd lie and cheat in order to get more money. There is a lack of holiness amongst those who profess to follow Jesus Christ. So although we talk the talk, when people look at our lives, they don't really see any difference. They just see the same greed and the same idolatry and the same lusts as everybody else. We've fallen into the error of the Nicolaitans and of Balaam, where we've claimed God to be blessing us and then we've ignored what God says. Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The Lord calls for repentance or he'll come in judgment. Unlike the church in Ephesus, the previous church, where the Lord praised the church for being vigilant and dealing with evil, Here, the church at Pergamon seems to have not realized that they were at war. I received a letter this week from somebody who said, how horrible that you use this language of war and this imagery of taking bullets and so on. And all I had to do was go to Ephesians 6, Revelation. In fact, any of the New Testament letters just to simply say, but that's the reality we are fighting against the evils amongst which we dwell. When you, if you were here this morning and you saw the shoebox appeal thing, poverty is an evil. The kind of injustice that exists in a Europe today where there are children who are not adequately clothed and not adequately fed and don't receive adequate medicine. The only way to describe that is that it is evil. And we have to fight against that evil. We fight against the evil of sexual immorality. We fight against the evil of poverty. We fight against all the evils that the devil brings in to seek to destroy and harm God's world. And we fight against it the same way Jesus does, with the sword of his mouth, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Take the helmet of salvation, says Ephesians 6, 17, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's why the word needs to be applied. And there's the crux for us in Scotland today 
because there are churches and Christians who have neutered the word because they say it's not the word of God or because they say it is, um, well, that bit's the word of God, but this bit is not the word of God. And they mock the Bible. I have been in church assemblies where people have mocked the Bible. And I've gone to conferences which have, (laughs) evangelical conferences, where the Bible is just pushed aside and it's left to people's feelings and stories and my, isn't that wonderful and isn't that deep and isn't that great? And there's nothing, almost nothing of the word of God. If the word of God is used at all, it's used as an illustration. When it should be the other way around, the word of God is God speaking to us and everything else is an illustration. The church in this country has neglected the word. And unless we are prepared to proclaim the word, and unless we are prepared to return to the word and return to the Christ of the word, the church in this country, there is no doubt at all that it will die. And that's why Christ comes, and that's why Christ calls us. Now go on to the last bit. He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because there are some in Pergamum who won't listen. And there are plenty in the church in Scotland today who won't listen. But there are some who do. And Jesus gives a very simple promise. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now overcoming is just simple. Overcoming is holding fast to Jesus Christ, keeping your faith in Jesus Christ. So that Stephen mentioned, for example, he was at work and nobody at his work, as far as he knows, is a Christian. And let's say you're in that situation and someone says, you don't believe in Jesus Christ, do you? And you say, well, yes, I do, actually. I do. And I'm not going to give that up. It's the 16-year-old boy who, with a teacher who should not have done this, teacher mocked Christianity and said, is there anyone here who believes in God? And he put his hand up and he was the only boy in his class. That's holding fast to the word of God. It is the church or the pastor or the individual who knows that when he teaches the word of God or when they teach the word of God, people within the church will be really upset and get up and walk out and they'll say it's unloving and they'll say everything else and just attack and attack and attack. But we're not moving. This is the word of God. We're not moving. It's all that we've got. And if you do that, if you hold fast, you overcome. And when you overcome, you get these two things, the manna and the white stone. So let me just say what they are, because I think, I think these are, are wonderful. The manna is from the Exodus. The manna was brought down. So uh, he's saying, Jesus is saying as, as Manna came, if you like, through Moses and that exodus, so I will bring you manna. Manna is something that feeds you. And he, uh, the word manna just means what is it? What is it that God feeds us with? It's a gift. Acts, uh, sorry, Exodus 16.32, at which the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant, this ark contained the gold jar of manna, air and staff that had budded, and the stone tables of the covenant. The hidden manna is unquestionably the secret bread of the word of God which sustains afflicted servants of God in their day of trouble until their enemies marvel at their steadfastness 
and strength. Because they hammer us. Subtle attacks all the time. Drip, drip, drip. Anti-Christian thinking into our culture and into our lives and into our families and into our education. And the only thing that stops us from being swamped and going under is we have the precious word of God, the manna of Jesus. The men's group are going to be look at Flavel's Mystery of Providence. Never mind being a man. Get that book and read it. It is just glorious, glorious, glorious book teaching Christian doctrine in such a practical way that I wish I could learn uh, how to do it in the way that Flavel does. But again, all that he's doing, he does a very simple thing. He just takes every circumstance in life and he applies the word of God to it. It's like um, when Jesus was tempted, Matthew 4.11, Jesus was tempted by the devil misquoting scripture. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. What we need is what people in Pergamum needed. To feast on God's holy food, the bread of life found in Jesus Christ through the word. Haven't you felt that sometimes? There are times in here in the past year as I've been listening to Sinclair in the evening or, or Dominic the other week that I just came out, oh, that was like, that was a feast. It was a feast. It was just wonderful. And non-Christians go, what, what are you talking about? You went to church, you had a feast. Well, we understand that if you have, you know, fish and chips or, uh, you know, some wonderful food. But it was a feast of God's word because it feeds the hungry soul. Jesus said to them, John 6, 32, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I love watching the rugby just now. And uh, um, very, very happy. Uh, we had a lot of uh, our, our Irish friends this morning who were somewhat uh, exuberant about going to France and Scotland not going because of the football. Uh, but I, I, I've suddenly turned into a rugby fan because we've done better in England in the rugby. So uh, rugby, uh, rugby is the game now. Forget football. No one cares about football. Um, and, but the Welsh, I always like watching the Welsh, especially when they play in Cardiff because they, they always sing bread of heaven. And it's fantastic. And I wonder how many of the 50, 60,000 people who are singing bread of heaven and boy, can the Welsh sing. And you know, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. And I wonder how many of them realize that it's not about sport and it's not about food and it's not about money and it's not about entertainment. It is the bread of God's word. And I, I pray that the Lord will have mercy upon all those who are singing it, not realizing that it is a prayer and that he will give them what they are singing but that's what we get. We get the bread of heaven. And that's why it's so unbelievably evil for those in ministry in the church or those in churches to take this book and to demolish it and take it away from the people of God. I cannot think of a worse sin for a pastor or a church to commit than to take the word of God and not feed it to the people of God. It is astonishing. At, at the debates that one or two of you were at, there was 
maybe 250 people, about 100 of them were, were from the minister's church that I was there debating. And the thing that, that disturbed me more than anything was, what are you feeding these people? You're feeding them stuff that's not the Bible. And that's poison. If I give you a meal, um, I hope deliberately, I hope I would never ever uh, give you food poisoning. I once did that to somebody. Um, it's a story of scrambled egg that went wrong, but that's why I'm not the chef in our house. But if I fed you poison, and it was you know, food poisoning, it was accidental, you'd say, well, fair enough. But if I feed you poison, and it's deliberate, if I'm deliberately taking good food and destroying it and feeding you garbage, well, Christ says, no, don't do that. I'm going to give you the hidden manna. And I will absolutely guarantee you this, that no matter how spiritually dry you may feel just now, you hold on to Jesus Christ, you don't let go of Jesus Christ, you stick with the word of Jesus Christ. Yes, you will go through barren patches, but he will feed you the bread of heaven. And then there's the white stone. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. We don't understand that because we don't understand the culture of what the white stone meant. In ancient society and in this society, it had a variety of meanings. And for example, when you were on trial, a juror would be given a stone. Uh, the jurors would have the stones, rather. And if they thought you were guilty, they would give you a black one. If they thought that you were innocent, they would give you a white one. I think that that is inferred here. That Jesus is giving to us a white stone and saying, Satan comes and accuses you, your heart accuses you, but you're innocent. You're innocent because of what Jesus has done. Another way that this stone was used, that when friends wanted to seal a friendship, they would take a stone and break it in two and each take a half. And again, I think that's an image that is in mind here where Jesus is saying, I've called you friends. You're my friends. Likewise, the stone was often used, particularly white stones, were used as admissions to feasts, to great parties. And the white stone that Jesus is talking about here is the admission, if you like, to the heavenly banquet. The new name on the stone is the Christian's own individual name. I love this paradox that exists in the New Testament, that we're in Christ we belong to Christ, but we've not become part of some big amorphous whole. Our individuality is retained more and more. Now, let me explain it in this way. We were um, had a bunch of people up for lunch, and we were talking about some of the children in the church. And um, when you get to know the kids, how they've all got their own personalities. And some of them are quite funny. Some you can see the characters of the parents in the children, and some of them you're wondering, where did they get that from? How did they manage to be so mischievous or so clever or whatever? But the great thing is about, you can't talk about the children as though they were just all children. You know, any, any one of you who says, oh, all children are just the same. No, they're not. They're fantastically individual. And especially in the context of a loving home and a loving church, a safe environment where they can be brought up in, 
because their, their individuality comes out more and more and more. A loving home doesn't squash a child's individuality. A loving home develops that. And that's the same with Jesus. Jesus, when we're in Christ, it doesn't mean that we become less human and less personal. It means we become more human and more personal. Now, the key question in this, in terms of the name, what name is written on the stone? It could be that it's our name. And it's, a, a, it's Christ's distinctive way of identifying us. Or it could be that it's the Lord's name. And I think it's deliberately ambiguous here. We don't know. If it's the latter, if it's the Lord's name, then that denotes a new and deeper relationship with the Lord. But what's really being said in this, either way, is that each believer may enjoy a relationship with the Lord which is unique and which therefore sets an inestimable value on every precious soul in God's sight. See, you and I don't really believe we are that precious. We can think about it for children. We can think about it for others. But me? Me? In God's eyes? You've got to be joking. That's why the most important thing for every one of us is a deeper communion and union with Christ. That stone is the stone of friendship. That stone stands for durability and imperishability. That white stone represents beauty and holiness and glory. That new name speaks of the character and the citizenships which belongs uniquely to the servant of God. And that's yours. You live, perhaps, in a society where Satan has his throne. You live in a world where there is great darkness. You live in a context of a situation where so many in the Christian church are backing off and compromising or becoming legalists or just being fake. And the Lord says, don't do it. Please don't do it. Hold on. Overcome. Be faithful. And even in this life, he gives us that stone. He gives us the manner. He gives us his word. He gives us the glory and the beauty. When all the world's bright lights are beginning to fade, for the very last time, all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ will be coming into their heavenly and unfading inheritance. I don't know if you saw the Aurora Borealis some of the amazing things. There's a photograph I saw of a bridge in Thurso with the lights. You just think, how is that not photoshopped? It's just, it's just spectacular. It's just glorious. It's just beautiful. And God says, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what I'm doing with you. That's what's going to happen with you. In all the ugliness and in all the darkness and in all the pain and in all the sorrow and in all the struggle, You're mine, you're mine, and you will see a beauty that is beyond comprehension. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Christian people, brothers and sisters, please do not give up on Jesus and his word. He will be vindicated, he will be glorified, and you will be with him. Hold on to him. Don't let go of him. Don't be fooled by the world. 
Don't be fooled by the lies of the devil. Don't be enticed by the false teachers, people of the Nicolaitans, the Balaamites, whatever. People call you names. People despise you. Don't do the same to them. Look upon them and ask the Lord to have mercy upon them because they don't know the one you know. They don't see his beauty. Grant they would do so. And if you happen to be here and you are not a Christian and you're thinking, whoa, that's really heavy. What are you talking about? I'm talking about Jesus and I'm saying unless you grasp Christ and unless you know Christ, you live in hell. You will live in hell and you live in a kind of pre-hell right now. There is a way that you can experience something which is beyond your wildest dreams because eye has not seen nor ear heard nor mind conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. And if you are not a Christian, I urge you, seek Christ. There is nothing more urgent. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for its power as you address the church in Pergamum and the power as it remains that you address the church in Scotland. And Lord, grant, please grant a spirit of repentance among your people here. Please grant us a desire for holiness, a desire for your word, a desire for you. Grant that we would get the the hidden manna. Grant, O Lord, that that white stone that we would hold on to it. Grant that we would see your beauty. Oh yes, we know that we will see your beauty in heaven and we long for that day. But grant that we would have a foretaste of it on earth. For we ask it in your name. Amen. And the ruler of the kings of the earth, may grace and peace abound. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.